Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. All right, let's open in prayer, shall we? Y'all let me know if I get too close to the edge of this stage. I'm used to standing on ground level, so fall off that's going to be not good heavenly father we thank you for your shabbat we thank you for this um this window this bubble of of rest and communion with you that you've given us father we thank you that you've invited us to this space we thank you for what you have for us today what you've already done for us today lord i ask that you would help us to tune our minds into what you have to say and that our focus would be solely solely on you and and worshiping you and following you and devoting ourselves and giving over our lives to you we ask all these things in the name of your son yeshua amen okay so this week's reading um picks up in numbers chapter 8 verse 1 and When the Parsha opens, we find ourselves smack in the middle of a story that's that's already unfolding. And what we see in Numbers chapter 8, verse 1, is Moses has just entered into the tabernacle, and he is hearing God speak to him from between the two cherubims that uh, are on the Ark of the Covenant. So God is seated on his throne his, his earthly throne that he has uh, created for himself. And Moses is hearing him speak from that, from that seat for the first time. Um, and as I, as I begin to dig into the minute details of this week's reading, the, what I like to call the, the microcosm, like honing in on something with a microscope, I decided to set the microscope aside and take out a telescope and look at the larger picture of what's going on here. And I like to call that the macrocosm. So it's taking a look at the entire forest um, after you've had a chance to get comfortable with, with all the trees that are in there. So, uh, and as I began to try to pull back and look at this story as a whole, I, I found something really interesting. And that's that this story that we're currently reading about is one that begins at the end of Exodus. This time frame that, that Moses is currently in is, is one that spans all the way from the end of Exodus through Numbers chapter 10. And this particular story takes place over just 14 days of time. So that means that God has devoted... 37 chapters of Torah to this two-week period that we're reading about right now. At the end of Exodus, uh, Moses is given the command by God that he is to raise up the tabernacle on the first day of the first month of the second year from the Exodus. And shortly thereafter, we see that Moses obeys that command. Now, from the end of Exodus until where we find ourselves now in Numbers we see this process taking place, that Moses sets up the tabernacle just like God commanded on the first day of the first month of the second year. 
this story goes from Nisan 1, which is the first day of the first month, to Nisan 14. So the two-week period that we're talking about here is from the start of the new year all the way through to Passover. And when you narrow down even more on this two-week period, you see that of those two weeks, really what's being described in these 37 chapters is just two days. That most of the text focuses on the first day of that month and the eighth day of that month. Now the story jumps around on the timeline as you're reading it from Exodus to Numbers. So sometimes it can be hard to to see exactly what's taking place when. But when you start to map it out, you get a sense that half of the text, half of those 37 chapters is devoted to what's happening on that first day, and half of those 37 chapters are devoted to what's happening on the eighth day of that month. So I started to think about this. Why did God do this? What does this mean? 37 out of 187 chapters of Torah are devoted to these two days. That's, that's 20% of Torah. So why would God choose to do that? And as I was thinking about this and, and the whole entire journey that the Israelites have been on and that they will continue to, to be on as we move into uh, Deuteronomy, um, it struck me that really this is kind of how our lives are too and ironically this August I'm going to be 37 so I started to think about these 37 chapters in terms of years one chapter for each year and if I were to sit down and write you the story of my life um, it, it really all comes down to about a handful or two of really important, memorable, pivotal moments that, that make up the summation of a life. There's all these days in between. You know, 37 years is a long time uh, when you look at it like that. But really, to tell you the story of who I am and, and what my life has been, there would be maybe 10, 15 key moments that defined who I have become. So, you know, the first day, obviously, is the day I was born, right? And, and just like I have a birthday and you have a day of birth, Israel has a day of birth, too. And I'm not talking about the Exodus just yet, but really, when you look at their, their birth, what what turned from the family of Jacob into the children of Israel was really when they came down into Egypt. So let's call that their birth. Um, mine wasn't near as, as fascinating. It was, you know, just across the bay at Mobile Infirmary, but still an important day on my timeline, right? So um, the next thing that happens is we see the children of Israel go from that point in time until the time of the Exodus. So I'm going to call the Exodus uh, the day of, of their salvation. So when you think back um, in your life, that moment where you made that decision to give your life to the Lord, and, uh, and what that day was like, and how old you were, and the events that had happened prior to that. 
So the day that I invited the Lord to, to come and live in my heart, um, I was about 12 or 13. And I was raised Southern Baptist, and we went to um, a small Baptist church. And so my brother and I were baptized together, actually, at the same time that weekend. And uh, we both made that commitment to the Lord. And I realized as I was thinking through this that something that I'm guilty of um, is when we read the story of the children of Israel, we automatically expect that after that moment of the exodus, that, that the Lord saved them with these ten plagues and, and brought them out of slavery, that that, that saving moment should have been... Um, Everything else from there should have been just coasting, right? They've seen these miracles. They've seen God do things that no one else has seen before on their behalf. They've walked through the Red Sea that he's parted. You know, they've seen Pharaoh's army decimated. Um, and even still, they get to Sinai, and they hear God's voice. But the Exodus was their new birth into the kingdom. Just like my baptism at 13 was my new birth into the kingdom. And when I look back at my life, the things that happened from that point to now wasn't coasting at all. In fact, it was just the beginning for me of figuring out what it meant to follow the Lord. And, and we give Israel a bad rap. We say, how can they, how can they have seen the things that they've seen and, and then turn away back to idolatry. But when I, when I think about my journey from a young teenager, um, you know, just in my life and with the Lord and discovering who he is and what that meant, you know, I agreed to go on a journey with him that I had no idea where we were headed, what that would look like or what was expected of me. Um, and just like Israel, I spent time complaining about where God was taking me. I, I fell back into idolatry. I, um, you know, I made more mistakes after I made that decision to be saved than I did before. And I see now that really that's where Israel found themselves. They were, they were baby believers, so to speak, you know, and um, as they are walking through this journey with the Lord, we have we have the ability to look back at that and, and we see these moments on their timeline and we get the benefit of knowing the things that, that are to come. So it's easy for us to say they should have done this, they should have done that. But as we walk through it in our own lives, it doesn't seem that clear. So I, I thought about these moments, these defining days in my life and what that story would look like. What would my city's names be, so to speak, on my journey? And certainly, you know, I can think of, of some big days would be the birth of my children, um, the day I got married, the day I first came to Mayan Kaim would be, would be a pivotal day. But really, that, those 37 years can, can be condensed down into about two weeks' worth of really memorable days. So this was interesting to me. So I started to think about why these two days. And what I saw was that 
basically everything to do with day one was really the moment that all creation had been waiting for since Genesis 3. After the fall of man, God was no longer dwelling in the midst of his people. Sin had separated them. And from that moment forward, everything was, was anticipating the return of the Father back with his creation. So Moses rearing up that tabernacle was probably the most anticipated move-in date in all of human history, second only to the return of Yeshua when he'll sit on the throne in Jerusalem. So in the original creation, God, as the creator, made himself smaller so that he could create a space for us. If, if he is infinite and limitless, then he was everything and everywhere. And in order to carve out a space for us, he had to pull back from that space. And he formed the world that we live in, and he formed the Garden of Eden, and he formed Adam and Eve and put them there. And he made them, you know, an apartment, a compartment in his world. After the fall... Now that this world is, is fallen, it's now our turn to make him a place in our world. So you see Moses and the Israelites using the pattern that God shows them in heaven, and, and they carve out this place in their midst for God to dwell. And that's everything that's happening on day one. Moses sets up the tabernacle. Um, he, he's given a list of, of laws and, and particular things that have to be done in a certain way for God to be able to dwell in their presence. And once those things have been carried out, the priesthood is then sanctified. So God tells Moses that Aaron and his sons need to be consecrated for eight days. And that eight-day window that we see between the first day, or seven days, I'm sorry, they're consecrated for seven days. So that window of time we're seeing is from the beginning of their consecration until what scripture calls the eighth day. And on the eighth day is when Moses and Aaron enter into the tabernacle for the first time. After they, after they go in, it's, it seems strange to me that the first thing God would say to them from, from inside his home, the first moment that he's speaking to them from off the ark, that the first words out of his mouth would be about the lighting of the menorah. This week's Parsha is Beha Alorcha, which, which is translated probably in a lot of different ways in your Bibles depending on which translation you have. So some say when you light the candles, when you light the menorah, when you, when you arrange them. But the root of that word means to ascend. So when you ascend to the lights or the lamps. And what some of you may not know is that in the, in the Mishkan, there were a series of steps that the high priests ascended in order to reach the top of the menorah, to light the candles, to clean them out, to, um, you know, maintain them and make sure that, that it was always burning continually. So the high priest, who has just been consecrated for seven days, 
who has just been sanctified, who's just had his garment sanctified, he enters into the house of his father and then he ascends to the menorah. The next thing that that God tells Moses is that after the light is lit, now it's time to consecrate the Levites. Not just Aaron's sons, but the whole family uh, of Levites that God has chosen for himself to redeem the firstborn. And it started to paint a picture for me of this, this window of 37 chapters, this two days that we see here, they aren't just a picture of Israel's life and journey as a whole. And it's not just, uh, you know, something that I can find parallels in for my own life, but it's actually exactly the same thing for Yeshua's life. Because everything about Scripture was written for him, about him, to him. So every detail that we find in Torah, we put Yeshua right in the center of it, and it makes sense. Yeshua is the high priest, and the children of Israel have just come from the original Passover, which happened the year before. And now they're coming up on the, on the first commemoration of that, and the tabernacle has finally been built after the golden calf fiasco and, and everything that they've experienced thus far. So we see that, that God consecrates the high priest, that God gives him clean garments, which is exactly what's being described in the Haftorah portion in Zechariah, that, that he sees Joshua, the high priest, being given these clean garments. And it says, um, rejoice, daughters of Zion, for I will come and dwell with you. And that's this promise that, that what we experienced with, with Adonai dwelling in the midst of the children of Israel will be a bigger reality one day. So we see the high priest is cleansed, he goes through uh, the sanctification process, and then he enters into the Mishkan. And the first thing that God tells him to do is to light the menorah. And if, if you were able to listen to our class on Revelation, one of the things that I talked about was when we see Yeshua for the first time in the throne room, he is cleaning and relighting the lights of the menorah. He's in the midst of seven lampstands or lamps. And then the, the next thing we see is him in the lampstands in the throne room. The, the cleaning and the lighting of the menorah is the first thing that the priests were to do on any given day in the temple. So that was the, the first assignment they had um, in the temple service, was to go in and clean the menorah. And Revelation says that, that those menorahs that we see pictured there are Messiah's communities. We are those light bearers. And the first thing we see him do in heaven is clean us take out the the ash and and the wicks that won't burn refill the oil light the flame now god is very specific with aaron and moses about how the menorah is to be lit and he says something that maybe you can only catch it in the hebrew but he tells him 
that the lamps are to be lit so that the, their light shines upon the face of the menorah. And that makes me think about Aaron's blessing that he's given and, and how Aaron pronounces over the people that, that Adonai would cause his face to shine upon them. And that picture of us as that menorah, as that light bearer, is, is such a great object lesson. We are lit by the hands of the high priest. The oil that we carry is sacred and holy. And that flame is not strange fire. It's, it's a fire that comes from God. And we're a vessel for that. We're not an owner of that. And we are responsible for making sure that that fire is lit and that it is lighting the way that God said that it must. The whole purpose of us being a lampstand is to bear his light, is to reflect his light. And if we're not doing our job, then we don't deserve, we don't deserve that flame. So, after the menorah is lit, we see that, that God tells Moses and Aaron that it's time to separate the Levites from the children of Israel, to separate them out. They'd already been, they'd already been counted um, before Moses and Aaron went into the Mishkan. So, think about this in terms of Yeshua's first and second coming. Think about the first day as the first coming and the eighth day as the second and we see that the Levites, this, this kingdom of priests, if you will, are, are counted. And God uses them to redeem the firstborn of Israel. And they know that they will be given to service to the Lord. But when Moses and Aaron go into the Mishkan, they remain outside. They're, they're still there in the congregation. But once the high priest goes in and he lights the flame of the menorah and him and him, Moses and Aaron come back out, now God says it's time to go and, and separate the Levites out from amongst the children of Israel and bring them into the Mishkan, into the service of the Lord. It's this beautiful picture of, of what awaits us if we, if we truly are Levites, if we truly are dedicated our entire lives to the service of God and, and his kingdom. So we see these, these two days, these, these pivotal moments in Israel's history. And when they were in them, I wonder if they realized how pivotal these days were. If they realized that God would spend 37 chapters talking about those two days, I think about what I would have been doing if I were there. I'd probably been complaining about how hot it was. You know, and how I, I don't get to see anything because I'm way in the back. And, you know, the next thing that happens is God shoots fire out of the Mishkan and consumes the, the brazen altar and the offering, and that's scary. You know, would I have understood the gravity of that? We see them grumble along their journey. We see them make huge mistakes. We see them do some of the, the most foolish things we can think of. But in reality, 
our journey is no different than theirs. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I, I mean, I've made way more mistakes than what's recorded for them in Torah. You know, I, I have seen God do some amazing things in my life. And I have also turned around and, and stepped backwards from him. So we're not that far off from what we see from the children of Israel. And I know that it feels like every year we read this, their decisions get dumber and dumber, but sometimes so do ours. You know, we should be at a place in our walk by now that we're, we're Caleb. You know, we're the faithful spies. We're, we're the ones that, that get to make it into the promised land because we had faith. But there's so many times in, in just my own day-to-day -day walk where I'm not even thinking about having faith. I'm not thinking about the Lord has this in his hands. I, you know, I, I'm not even aware of him sometimes. And, and I step out in fear, and, and I don't say the right thing, or I don't do the right thing. And I have years on where the, where the children of Israel are, you know? My, the, the depth of my walk and the indwelling of the Ruach. If anything, we're held to a higher standard of accountability than the children of Israel. They didn't have the benefit of having the indwelling uh, of, of God's spirit. We do. So I challenge you, as you continue to read this story, to really think about those moments that make up your 37 chapters or, or however many they are what are those defining moments and more often than not when I looked back at mine the ones that were the most defining for me the ones that were the most pivotal were the ones where I'd made some huge mistake where I'd gone the wrong direction those are the times that God really refined me and, and changed me from the inside out. It wasn't always like the happy ones or the ones where I really did what I should have done, you know? Those kind of passed by without much notice, but the ones where you, you know, hit the brick wall, those tend to stick in your mind. And the children of Israel needed every single one of those stops along their journey to change them and the first generation didn't make it, but it's not always about you. It's about what you're building in the next generation. And, you know, as a parent, the greatest thing that we can hope for is that the stops along our journey that, that threw us off course or caused us to, to stumble, that those things will become signposts for our children but they can't become signposts if we don't talk to them about them. If we continue to, to maintain a facade that we are now who we've always been, you know, that I'm, I've always been this far along in my walk. I've always been this dedicated to the Lord. You know, sometimes we don't want our kids to know some of the stuff that we did. Um, and, and I understand that, certainly I do, but um, my kids can't learn from my mistakes and, unless I tell them about my mistakes. And at this point, where Israel is in their story, 
you know, I just kind of sat thinking to myself yesterday that, you know, man, I sure hope that I'm the generation that gets to go in and gets to claim those blessings, whatever that may look like. But if I'm not, that's okay too. And I'm going to continue on this journey and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that the next generation that does, this, this generation that we're growing up now, that, that they'll be equipped and that they won't make the same mistakes that I made. But more importantly, that they'll be able to see past their own lives and, and our lives and see Yeshua in every single one of those moments and realize the larger picture of this world that we're in now, this life that we're living now is just temporary. It's just woven cherubim on a veil. It's not the tangible. It's not the real. That what's to come is, is when life actually starts, when it begins for us. And we need every single one of those pitfalls, those, those stops in the wilderness of Paran and everything that, that we go through that makes us stumble, that's what grows us. And that's what makes us ready to inherit that. So as you, as you continue on in their story um, for, the rest of, for the rest of this year and we read about their journey, I just, I just uh, ask you to think about it in, in those terms. Don't be so hard on the children of Israel. You know, we, we certainly appreciate a break every now and then on our stupid mistakes. So, um, but really think about what those moments are for you and what God is trying to teach you or did teach you through them. Because if we don't learn from those mistakes, then we're just going around that mountain for no reason. And it, and it has a purpose. So, um, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for, first and foremost, for your patience with us and for your willingness to always give us another chance to turn around and go the right way, to be forgiven. Father, I thank you for the hard lessons I thank you for the times that you let me have it my way so that I could really learn that my way wasn't the right way. And Father, I, I ask your forgiveness for my own hard-headedness and stiff-neckedness and my inability to have faith in you and trust you blindly. Lord, I ask that you would continue to grow each of us up into that picture of that priesthood that you're calling out for yourself. Lord, that you would make us ready for the day that your high priest exits the Mishkan and comes back to collect his priesthood, his bride. Father, we ask for, for the ability to remain faithful as you are always faithful. And we ask you all of these things in the name of your precious son, Yeshua, our high priest. Amen.